This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. And I'm Joe Newton. Our guest today is Janine Fox, who is a chaplain with Seasons Hospice in Detroit, Michigan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Can you give our uh, listeners a little bit of your background? Where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Michigan, uh, in a city called River Rouge. It's a southern suburb of Detroit. Detroit is like two blocks away. But our city is a really small, like a small town. So we had... uh, the benefit of being near a big city, but having uh, a small city next to it with where everybody knew everybody, uh, the neighbors knew your parents. So if they saw you doing something wrong, they would tell your mom and dad. So we behaved <laughs> because we knew uh, that we could get in trouble with anybody's parents. And I, I think that's one of the beauties of a smaller city where there was a lot of community uh all the families knew each other so we all played together we had a great childhood even though um sometimes when you hear about Detroit you hear about you think of the of crime and blight and all that but we didn't we 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 were very fortunate even though we are near Detroit we we had just a really good experience of uh, a small community and so I grew up there, went to high school all my life, you know, in the same city. Then I went to University of Michigan when I graduated. Uh, of course, at that time, I, I didn't want to be a chaplain, or let alone a hospice chaplain when I grew up. That was the furthest from my mind. But life brought me uh, into the direction of not just being a chaplain, but a hospice chaplain. Uh, it was not even on my radar. I was uh, one of those people who was just terrified of death and dying. When my grandmother and grandfather died, I I was the person who wouldn't go to the room. I waited in the lobby because um, I just could not handle seeing them, watching them die. And it is so ironic that now that's what I do every day. And, and I <laughs> I couldn't even do it at that time, I was about 19, 11 and 19, and I, I couldn't do it. That's how I know this is a God thing, because it's nothing I would have chosen. Amen. Amen. Now, the, the situation I have listening to that is, I mean, you have, of course, you have uh, a family situation. Are you many siblings, few siblings, family? What'd your dad do for kind of, I mean, I like to a little bit more about your background yeah. to see, you know, I, I, I'm curious. Okay. I have uh, two younger brothers, so I'm the oldest uh, child uh, and the girl. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I was, I'm like the big sister, and, and they had to follow me everywhere. Uh, my father, our family owned a, a roller rink. Well, they still own it, and, and wow. we still skate and run the rink. And so my life, I grew up in the family business, which was the roller rink. Uh, so we skated, and, and that was our life. And a lot of the children from the community came there. And so 
I'm one of the people, if you're from this area, they know me or they associate me with the uh, roller rink. So I have a family of entrepreneurs. And then the ones that worked, worked for Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, people worked for one of the big three since we're like the Motor City. Right. So did you think um, uh, that's what you'd be doing for a living, working in a roller rink all your life as as a child growing up? I didn't want to. People thought <laughs> I was... They thought I was, oh, you're lucky you get to go skating. You're there. Like every time the doors were open, I was there, even on Saturdays. But I really fantasized about doing other things like maybe play baseball or or just (laughs) ride my bike on a Saturday. But every Saturday um, we had to be at the rink. And I did it so much that, no, I did not. Want to, I wanted to get as far away from skating because I could at that time. But uh, and getting away was great. And now I'm glad to be able to do both, have a uh-huh. career and still help out. And I'm glad that our family is big enough that it didn't all depend on me, that there were other people who sure. could could help out. Both of my grandmothers, my maternal and paternal uh, grandmothers were really into church. They went to two different churches. So I was back and forth. I got a chance to experience a couple different churches and sang in the choir, got baptized when I was about nine years old. That was very important to me um, because I wanted to be able to take communion and we couldn't take communion until we, uh, till you were baptized. So that, that was very, very important. And I've been I've loved God for as long as I can remember. And I know in third grade, I had, I found a Bible. It had been my mother's Bible. And so I took the Bible. I knew I wanted to read it. I started from Genesis 1-1 and just page by page. I I really, as, as a nine-year-old, you would think I wouldn't know what I was reading, but I mm-hmm. did get the gist of it. Even mm-hmm. reading the Old Testament by myself <laughs> every night. I would try to read a chapter a night and and I could see uh, the patterns uh, in the Old Testament. It was just something I picked up and wanted to do. What was the motivation behind that? I wanted to know God. I wanted to know why I was here. Um, At nine years old. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's pretty, you're pretty precocious. And I thought it was normal. I did not realize that that wasn't ordinary to to want to know God or to want to find him through the Bible. But but that was me. And I would lay in my bed and think about um, the whole the world, the universe, like what if nothing else was here? What if I'm the only thing that's real? What if I was by myself? And it's just weird. Well, I don't maybe it's not weird, but I would think about things like that, like why am I here and and different mm. objects and matter and what are they and what if they were not here? <laughs> wow. So have you got all the answers now? <laughs> I'm still working on it. Oh, but... good. I'm glad to hear you say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to the University of Michigan. Uh, tell us what happened after that. What did you study and what line of work did you go towards? Okay, so I I went to University of Michigan in Dearborn, which is like a satellite campus. And the reason I did that, because when I was 19, I landed a job at the Detroit Newspaper Agency. Uh, We handled affairs for the Detroit News and Free Press. And it was a pretty good job. Uh, So I commuted to school. I did not get the on-campus experience. 
Uh, so I got a chance to learn the newspaper industry. I worked in various departments. So I was working and in school at the same time. And once I graduated, I continued to work at the paper from around 1990 up to about 2001. So I did a lot there. Um, I major, I, my major was liberal studies, so I had three minors because I just could not pick a major because I was interested in so many things. So my three areas of study were business, communications, and sociology, because those were all three things that meant a lot to me. And I had a hard time just choosing one, but I've been able to use those three areas today. So, um, I've worked in sales. I, I like to write. I've done some publishing and writing. Uh, I was a columnist from 2001 to 2016. So about 15 years, I wrote an inspirational column. Uh, and then the business part of it was helpful. I grew up in a family business. So I think everything I do, I try to integrate business into it. So it was a good combination for me. Um, I wanted to be like an engineer or an accountant because I really wanted to follow the money. I thought maybe uh, I could make more money <laughs> being an engineer or an accountant, but I was just not good at it. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I didn't love it. So I, I just, I realized that um, I'm, I'm going to go in the other direction, uh, the communications piece, the sociology, because I like working with people. So what tripped your trigger for chaplaincy? That that was born out of an experience that I would have never tried to plan out myself. Um, so in, in the midst of all this, I, I became a wife and a mom. And uh, in 2000, when my son was born in 2001, in 2003, all of a sudden, I noticed uh, something was wrong. He he was his behavior changed drastically. We were back and forth at the doctor. They couldn't really find anything wrong until finally he lost his ability to walk. And I took him to my aunt. I said, I keep taking him to the doctor and they can't find anything wrong. So she insisted that we go to her pediatrician. And as soon as he looked at my son, he he called the children's hospital and had him directly admitted. He immediately recognized that something was wrong. And, and I wrote about it, uh, a book called AJ's Miracle. And um, he ended up in children's hospital with the lesions on his brain, like uh, encephalopathy. And we ended up there for three months. They were preparing me to, you know, let him die if, you know, he might not make it. And he stopped breathing a few times. And we spent three months at the children's hospital. So during that time, I'm observing everything. Uh, prior to that, you know, I was a, a working mom. I was working in uh, mortgages, doing, doing everything, just trying to make a lot of money and, <laughs> and pursuing my dreams. And then it was interrupted by this sickness in my son. And it really forced me to sit still and slow down. And um, during that time, we were visited by chaplains uh, at the hospital. And some of the interactions were really good and, and helped bring me some peace. And some of the other ones were not as great. 
Uh But at the end of that experience, once they discharged him, I just I was a different person and I I wanted to be one of the good chaplains. I (laughs) I held on to the value of, of the ones that helped me, the ones that encouraged me to be introspective, the ones who one who pointed me to God to find out what I was supposed to learn. And, and, and that's what helped me grow. They asked me challenging questions. And, and I said, I want to be able to do that. I want to help people who are in this hopeless situation um, to find hope. And so uh, after my son was discharged, which was a miracle, by the way, because they were preparing me to let him go and, and God healed him. It was over, you know, a period of time where he eventually was healed. And and even his neurologist said, agreed with me that this is from God. This is a miracle. But I I think I needed that experience, even though I never would have asked for it. I never would have agreed to it, but it changed my life. and, And that's what led me to chaplaincy because I started inquiring about it and they led me to CPE. And once I took my first unit of CPE, I was just, I was in and, you know, I took three more units. Um, I did my first internship at Children's Hospital and got hired right away as a a contingent chaplain, which led to pediatric hospice, uh, which was something I really didn't want to do even after my son, even though I was preparing to lose a child because I got that miracle. It was still hard for me to think about just watching children die day after day. So it was one of those uh, things I was like the reluctant warrior, but I ended up getting hired anyway. And that led to me doing adult hospice and pediatric hospice. And that was back in uh, 2005, 2006. So here we are with 15, 16 years later, and, and I'm still doing the work. Yeah, with that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service, providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at nami.org. I'm Sol Bam, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We continue our conversation with Janine. Uh, you said when you were in the hospital and you know your son is going through this tremendous challenge, I'm, I, I'm sure it was a painful experience. And you have two groups of chaplains coming to support you. Others were good, as you say, and others were terrible at the job. Um, <laughs> what were the differentiators for you there? Well, I think, and I was trying, I didn't want to use the word terrible, but I get it. It's funny. It's kind of, well, looking back on it, but what, and, and I said, even if I could share with chaplains just to know what's helpful, because it's hard being a chaplain. And if you've never, sat in those shoes, you know, worn those shoes, you don't really know what to say. And I found myself in in that situation where you go on, you get a little history about the patient and you really 
you're not real sure how to approach it or what do I say or how do I break the ice? So I, I do realize that that's hard. But um, I think one of the things or one of the mistakes that a chaplain could make is to, to make assumptions uh, when you approach a, a loved one who is at a bedside. Um, and I'm thinking of one instance where this particular day, I was having a better day, like a, a positive. I was in a good state of mind, even though my situation was still bad. I wasn't feeling bad, but the chaplain came in and assumed that I was really sad. Because I mm-hmm. guess looking looking at it, you would think she ought to be sad. But this day, I really wasn't <laughs> sad. <Yes. laughs> I was, and so instead of him meeting me where I was, he took me from a good disposition to sad. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of just being with me in my good moment, even though yes, my son is laying here with the feeding tube, and this is bad. But right now, I'm I'm feeling positive and hopeful about this whole thing. And let me have my hopeful moment. I don't get too many mm-hmm. of them, yeah. but don't take it away from me right now. And, and you have some chaplains who expect you to be sad and just try to pull you into the sadness instead of letting the family lead the way, see where, see where they are now and just go with that and don't pull them to where you think they should be. And then those who were inspirational and motivated to become a chaplain, what did they do that touched your soul? They asked me tough questions. They they let me tell my story and and, and even made me think. Um, one of them asked me, so she says, so, so what is God telling you in all this? And then it just kind of <laughs> shook me. I said, because I hadn't thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. First of all, she put God into it and and I hadn't really been thinking about God or what he would have to do with this situation or what he could do with it. So Mm -hmm. she made me reframe everything. Um, And I appreciated that because she made me think about things that uh, that I hadn't thought of. And And it wasn't even that she was demanding an answer. I knew she was getting me to think. And she just sat and she listened and and I, I really needed that and I appreciated that. And she didn't make any assumptions. She didn't guide me in any direction. She she let me find it in myself. That sounds like wonderful work. I mean wonderful example for you to use in the ministry you do now. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it, it has helped me uh to know what was helpful to me. And not that everyone that I interact with will be like me, but mm-hmm. just to let them tell their story. Yeah. So you indicated that your son's illness was almost like um, uh, a wake up. Uh, how can I, a pivotal moment for you to look at life differently because yes. you spoke about doing all these other things, trying to make money. Mm-hmm. And then here you have to hit the brakes Tell us um, the process of your son healing, but also you healing mentally yes. and desiring to become a healer. But at that time in my life, I was just like, I was already on a second career. Um, and I was doing mortgages and I had just <laughs> uh, sort of secured a deal with a, um, a housing contractor 
I was helping people. I was a loan officer with mortgages. So I had about 20 mortgages uh, pending, you know, ready to close. And that was going to equal a lot of money. And not only that, um, there was a, a, a builder that wanted to use me as their loan person. So they were going to direct all these people to me. And, and I was just at, it was, I was set up to just to be successful and get the money that I've been wanting. And then this happened. And at first I thought, oh, you know, maybe he'll be in the hospital a couple, you know, maybe a couple days, a week or so, and I'll be back. And those days turned into weeks and into months. And I, I couldn't, leave like God knew that was the only way he was gonna that I would be stopped from from pursuing all these other things um so it it changed me and I, I I used to think about you know bills you know money paying this paying that doing this doing that and then when I was in that hospital I saw children needing heart transplants getting major serious surgeries um, and then down the hall, you would hear a mom wailing because they just told her her child died. And I thought, and I'm getting emotional because I used to think that success was so important. But when I saw what those babies were going through, like none of that other stuff meant anything anymore. Mm. And because these kids were here fighting for their lives. And I was worried. All I was worried about was making money. And it changed everything. Mm. It just reminded me of um, how precious life is and how some things cannot be purchased. And that was that's where I I changed Mm. during that time. That was um, very powerful. God has an enormous amount of influence in us. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was, you know, I I could think about, you know, what if I had done all those mortgages? I, I don't even care. You know, I didn't even care about that anymore. Uh-huh. Those lives have so much more value than any of the others. So you sensed a higher calling to walk alongside parents who, you know, whose kids yep. are sick and, and probably dying in, in, in hospice. Yep. So, um, wow. How did you go through some kind of counseling uh, to, to get um, here? Well, not really. I mean, CPE helped me a lot, too. And the other thing was, you know, even being there, the isolation um, for three months. And I could probably count on one hand who visited us regularly because everybody goes about their lives and they forget about you there. Um, you know, you get the few people who are faithful, who check on you. Um, but for the most part, you're kind of discarded, um, you know, and you're forgotten and you're trapped. And and it was it was a hard place, but it, it really helped me to realize a lot of things. And to be honest with you, that would have been me. I, who wants to go to the hospital to visit people? Nope. You know, nobody really who, who wants to face that kind of sadness. And even I have been guilty of it because I wouldn't even go see my grandmother when she was dying. Mm. I wouldn't even go sit with my grandfather because I just didn't want to deal with it. So I get it. I get it. 
And I know uh, as far as the healing, when I was, uh, when they were preparing me to let my son go and what got me through that and the paradigm shift took place when I thought about the scripture in Genesis, uh, when uh, uh, Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, when he was Mm -hmm. ready to, uh, you know, had the knife up, I had to get to a place where I said, okay, God, this is your baby. This is your child, really. You you sent him to me to be his mom. And if if two years is all I get, I'm just going to thank you for the two years because you had him first. You loved him before you sent him to me. And if I can't keep him, if you're done, then okay. So I had to come to a place of accepting it that if if this is what God wants, I'm going to let it go. It took me a while to come to that place because I was fighting for the mirror. I was fighting for the healing. I wanted him to get better. I didn't even allow myself to entertain the thought of him dying. And one of the chaplains, she was just really honest with me. And I really, when I went to see her, because I I want I just needed to talk to somebody else. So I, I asked for the chaplain. I went to her office. I wanted her to just tell me or promise me, God is going to make this better. God is going to heal him, right? God, we're going to say a prayer and he's going, we're going to go home together. And I wanted her to like make a deal with me to tell me my son was going to be okay. And she just, she looked at me sincerely and she couldn't make that promise. And that was devastating. <laughs> and uh, but she I appreciated her honesty and she didn't sugarcoat anything. And she she told, you know, she pointed out the reality of it. it he could die. And that's when it hit me and it became real that, wow, I guess he could. And I had to process that. And then I had to be willing to say, well, you know what? I'm like, OK. Once I let him go, that's when God gave him back. Yep. Yeah. The ram in the bush. (laughs) (laughs) Question about that. I mean, it's, it's, again, another part of your journey is so real. And what everybody goes through when their loved one has been diagnosed, whether with a serious illness, no matter the age. Right. And here you are now dealing with families with loved ones that they're denying that anything's happening. And you've lived, you've lived that. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, how do you walk into that, that environment and what is it that you offer them? A space. Sometimes you have to let people talk themselves into things. Um, Uh They didn't need to hear my voice. Sometimes you just need to sit there and listen and, and watch. They will talk themselves through it and answered themselves. And sometimes they need to hear themselves say it um, and not to be preached at or talked at. Uh, With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Uh, Janine, it looks like your faith uh, played a big role 
for you, especially when your son was sick in the hospital for all those months, but also for your healing. You know, faith played a big part. So you get out of the hospital and then you sense a new direction to life, a new purpose to life, and you seek clinical pastoral education. How did that happen? Well, I inquired at the hospital uh, asking, you know, how do you become a chaplain? And they directed me to CPE um, through Ecumenical Theological Seminary. So I contacted them and I enrolled right away. And about, I'd say about six months later, and I ended up doing my internship at Children's Hospital, which was very difficult uh, because it brought back a lot of memories, just being back in the hospital, being back in that place that I associated with so much pain. Um, but, but after, you know, I had to be coached <laughs> through it. And there were some other experienced chaplains who really, really helped me get through that initial phase where it was difficult because there were days I was going to walk out of there and not come back mm. at the hospital as a chaplain, because I was completely overwhelmed uh, by some of the things that I saw happening uh, through the emergency room, throughout the whole hospital. That Some of the things you see are unfathomable. Mm. And, um, and I, edit, I, I said, oh, I thought I wanted to do this, but <laughs> I don't know if I could do it. And so one of the other chaplains who helped me get through that hard part, I was telling him that I can't do this. I, I'm not, this is my last day. I'm not coming back. And he said, well, you can, you can quit and uh, go do something else and that's fine. But, you know, kids are still going to die. Kids are still going to come in here mangled up and hurt. That's still going to happen whether you are here or not. Now, you could bless these people. You could be the voice or, or, or the, a source of comfort for these people. Or you could go and, you know, like go on with your life and forget that all of this stuff happens here. And so I realized I had a choice. Um, I could go, you know, live my life and, and forget that there's suffering and children and families, or I could be a healing presence. So I chose the healing presence. And I had to realize that I can't fix everything. I am not God. I cannot resolve every issue or comfort everyone. But um, if, you know, if I could heal even to the smallest bit, and there were times where I would be with families and, and they experienced the death of a child. And then upon leaving the hospital, they would pull me aside and thank me, which really confused me. And I'm thinking, thank me, your child just died. Like, what are you thinking? Like, I couldn't even imagine what there was to be thankful for but for some reason they were just grateful that I was there and that that was overwhelming like I didn't know that my presence could mean so much and I don't I don't think it's me but I think it's God in me um or God surrounding me using me that would would allow me to make that kind of impression on somebody who just had one of the worst experiences of their lives. And that is why I was able to continue to do that work. 
It's find that interesting that you don't associate it with the good chaplains that you had experience with, and you were just kind of fed on. You know, you 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 built off of what they provided for you, mm-hmm. and you did you did the same thing for these families, and uh, that's incredible work. I mean, good. You, that's incredible work. And you spoke of the one thing that I wanted to talk about about your your journey here, Janine. And you talk about being there, a presence. Mm-hmm. How has COVID changed your chaplaincy ministry, if it has? Yeah, it has. And even though I've worked the entire time, um, initially uh, supported families by phone. And when I could get into a facility, we actually have an inpatient unit. And there were some places that I could get into, even some homes where the family was willing to allow me to come in. And a few of them did because they needed support uh, Mm -hmm. where I've gone out. But the weird thing, you know, holding someone's hand with a glove on um, or having the mask and they can't really hear you well, Mm -hmm. um, that of course, complicates things because you have the barrier. But but I've had the privilege of still being able to be with people and even um, helping them to participate like in a Zoom or something to bring families in who couldn't be there physically. So I would facilitate Zoom calls and things like that. So that gave me some connection. But with all the barriers up, it, it does hinder the ministry uh, so we improvise and just do the best we can to be present. Now, Michigan's been struggling with COVID recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you able to get into more facilities and more situations than you have in the past at this yes. point? Yes. Yeah. And and I'm not as afraid as I used to be. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was vaccinated right away as soon as I could be. Yep. So I think because in the beginning there was so much we didn't know um, and then, um, as time went on, I got a little more confident, more comfortable, uh, where I would mm-hmm. go. And then, cause some of these people were still alert and they knew they were alone. And, um, that was heartbreaking in itself, but to have somebody come in and see you, like I had a lady with COVID and she, she just couldn't stop thanking me mm-hmm. for, for coming in to see her. And, you know, and, and praying with her, it meant so much to her because everyone else, either they just couldn't or they were afraid to, I don't know. But um, she was deeply grateful for the visit and, and I was glad to be able to visit her. Mm. So what keeps you going? I mean, um, you've, you saw your son almost die. Mm-hmm. And you've worked with, you know, parents with dying kids in hospice all these years. Mm-hmm. Well, what yeah. keeps you going? <laughs> what keeps you coming back to hospice? <laughs> well, I think uh, balance is important. And I think that's where, for me, roller skating comes in because that is my escape. It's the one thing I can do uh, to get away from everything else. Uh, between the music and the exercise helps my anxiety. Uh, and it, it just allows me to get away for a couple hours before I go back to, to, to the reality 
of, of the hospice world. And then my, my children, my family, uh, just to have good things, things that make you smile outside of work. Uh, though that's what keeps me going. Incredible, incredible story. Tell me, how's your son? Oh my, he is, he's amazing. I love the smile that tells me a lot. (laughs) He's 20 years old right now. And my mother, she told me, she said this, she said, I think when, when, uh, when God healed AJ's brain, he got a bionic brain because he's extremely intelligent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He's very smart. Um, He's a unique individual, but he, he, he is an artist, a creator. Awesome. He's a very special person, which I, I knew that all along, but um, I, I'm just thankful to still have him. I, I, and, and that makes my heart go out even more for the moms who had to walk out of the hospital empty-handed. What are your final thoughts? I am just so honored. Uh, even this morning when I was sitting meditating and thinking I was in tears uh, because I'm just so I feel so grateful and uh, it is definitely the glory of God that allows us the glory and the grace that allows us to do this work there is no way in my own strength that I could do what I do having seen what I've seen and knowing what I know that I could do this and keep my sanity so uh, I just I'm grateful for God's grace. Um, and he said it was sufficient. And that is why I'm, I've been able to do this for so long. And people I've worked with before, they're like, you're still doing hospice because people do get burned out from mm-hmm. hospice and mm-hmm. they can only do it for so long. And I said, yeah, I'm still doing it. And you know, it's, it's still an honor to do. And yes, yeah, some days I get weary of it. Um, I said, if I hear another sad story, <laughs> But mm-hmm. it's it's what we do is is who we are. But we get to see certain things, and this is part of my ministry with it too. That that other people, unfortunately, aren't even families that are there with us mm-hmm. don't always see those things. How God uh, plays in this. Oh my, yeah. I mean, even, you know, God's presence is there, and it's, yeah. it's. I mean, I get chills thinking about that because yeah. it it's. And when we're, you know, how can you, how can you say, I get tired of seeing that? <laughs> I don't. I, one of the first patients, and I have to share this. this Please girl, do. She was 14 years old when I first started in pediatric hospice and sat through my first IDG, which I almost ran out of uh, because <laughs> I could, I couldn't believe the stories that I was hearing about these children and, and their illnesses. So the um, 14-year-old girl, she was dying. And she knew she was dying and she was so okay with it. She was at peace with it. And I, that just didn't make sense to me. But when you listen to her talk, you said, this is not a regular 14-year-old girl. This, God is with her and the things that she would say. And she would have dreams and talk about heaven and the way she would describe things. I said, this girl couldn't make this stuff up. No. And one of the things she said that stuck with me when she dreamed about going to heaven and she said it was like a hallway, she saw people that she knew. And she said that all of the whys of her life were suddenly answered without her even having to open her mouth to ask all the the questions she thought she would ask God when she got up there, like why this, why that, when she got up there was like a a click, everything, every unanswered question was non-verbally answered because in that realm, your whole 
understanding is, is so much different. And for a 14 year old girl to explain that to me, I said, this is definitely divine. Mm-hmm. And uh, the grace of God is with her. And she she didn't want us to be upset about her dying. She kept reassuring her family that it's okay. She, you know, it's okay. And that's when I knew, oh, God, God is here. <laughs> he is here. Out of the mouths of babes. I mean, yes. it's, it, I mean, uh, children, I mean, that's the, the sad part about how sometimes families deal with, with, with dying, death and dying is that they try to protect their children when in yeah. reality, they're very well aware what's going on. Yes. Yep. Wow. Uh, thank you very much, Janine. Oh, Janine, thank you so much for willing to share and be so candid. It's uh, it's a love, love, loving time to meet you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm. That was Chaplain Janine Fox, who is a chaplain with Seasons Hospice in Detroit, Michigan. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, visit us at audiohivepodcasting.com.